Christian, welcome to the pod. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is your debut appearance. How are you feeling about it? I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's a nice well, little room we got here. Just well, enjoying it. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. We're going to be talking about uh, the EPA's rollback of cybersecurity regulations mm-hmm. for the water industry today. Mm-hmm. Drank enough water today? Um, I actually did. I did bring my water bottle today and That's filled great. it up. Yeah. No concerns that your water supply has been poisoned by malicious hackers? At the moment, no. I think it's just some cheap green tea. Nice. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, whatever, whatever it takes. Yeah. So Christian and I, we're going to be talking about EPA uh, cybersecurity water regulations mm-hmm. and how they're no longer in force. Uh, we'll also have an interview today with Elliot Peterson of the FBI. That's up next on Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, host of Safe Mode. Welcome to the show, Christian Vasquez, reporter at CyberScoop. Hey, hey. Hey, so in the last couple of days, the Biden administration has rolled back their cybersecurity regulations for the water industry. Mm-hmm. What's happened? Yeah, so this is actually a pretty big deal. Um, new regulations doesn't come very often for a critical infrastructure. The last one was the TSA rollout right after the Colonial Pipeline hack, and that did not go too well. And it looks like this one is also not going too well. Um, basically, EPA had a, you know, reinterpretation of their existing authorities under the uh, Safe Drinking Water Act back in March. Um, Shortly after that, three Republican states joined in a lawsuit, and then some trade groups also joined into that as well, basically saying that EPA created new rules without uh, following the rulemaking procedure. They're adding new regs without, you know, additional funding. Um, It's potentially conflicting with state laws and state right issues. So that happened back in April, about a month after EPA uh, introduced the new legislation, I mean, the new um, regulation Uh, in July, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, the eighth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, stayed that. So we never actually got to see that into fruition. And in October, EPA basically said, well, we're withdrawing. We're done. We're going to try again, essentially. So these rules and the attempt by the EPA to regulate the cybersecurity of water regulations. This is kind of a weird move, right? Yeah. Relied on the agency's so-called sanitary authority, right? Mm -hmm. And they were going to use their authority to to carry out so-called sanitary checks to enforce cybersecurity regulations for the water industry. Walk us through this. How is this supposed to work? Yeah, so... The water industry has these things called sanitary uh, surveys, um, where basically you have a surveyor come in and you check the water, right? You check to make sure it's clean and it doesn't have any, you know, impurities or any kind of unwanted, yeah, lie, you know, no slut, anything, you know, I don't want lie in my water, well, whatever the safer is like, I don't know, I'm not a water expert. Um <laughs> But maybe maybe a little bit is good. I actually don't know. But um, essentially what they did is taking that kind of existing procedure and just kind of added cyber into the mix because, you know, it's 
Well, I don't really know their, their, their reasoning, to be honest. It, it was a bit strange. It was really creative, uh, to be honest. And the, the whole thing kind of, it, 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 I kind of felt like it wasn't going to happen, especially right after I was talking to some trade groups in the lead up to that announcement. They were very, um, I, I think the words were ill-advised and impractical, mm. essentially. So, you know, there's you have these surveyors who actually go out and are supposed to do this. They don't really have the subject matter expertise. There's not really a standard. Uh, they could measure it. They were also worried about, you know, protecting uh, sensitive information. These are a lot of states that now have to also protect, you know, how safe is this utility? How safe is that utility? And that could open up potential liability and things like that. So there was a whole, whole slew of questions that both uh, the attorneys general for those states and the trade associations kind of had for, for this one. Yeah. So the Biden administration in choosing to rely on the EPA to enforce cybersecurity of or the water industry made this really creative decision mm-hmm. in relying on the EPA, right? Why did they go to the EPA? Why did they, why did they make this move? Right. So the EPA has certain authority like be able to to add these to the sanitary or or well the EPA has the Biden administration argued that yeah yeah the, the exactly 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 yeah yeah powers, the Biden administration right? was arguing that the EPA had the authority but um, now maybe they don't essentially um, but the reason they went to the EPA is because they are the sector risk management agency their agency in charge of water water is a critical infrastructure sector um, but water does not have any you know rules and regulations. For cybersecurity, some mandates, meaning that, you know, something could happen if they don't follow it. Um, And they use this because that was kind of their only way in. They're basically trying to get more critical infrastructure sectors to be, you know, a bit up to par against, you know, the digital defenses, against state hackers and ransomware and things like that. And this was kind of their way of trying to get this in without having to go to Congress, which they're going to have to try to do now in the coming weeks. So, yeah, the Biden administration's approach broadly speaking for cybersecurity mm-hmm. as it relates to critical infrastructure is to try to increase regulation and water is seen as this weak link mm-hmm. in many ways right walk us through a little bit what have we seen in terms of attacks on the water industry in the last couple of years what are, what are the threats facing the water industry right so there's water is very distributed right there's approximately like 150,000 public water systems, and they can be anywhere from, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to under 3,000 people. Um, They're just very distributed. The kind of resources they have are also very unequal. There are some bigger ones in cities who have the resources to protect themselves. Other ones, it's a couple of guys who, you know, they're not, they're not even in IT. They're just they just know they're water, water guys. guys. Yeah, they're water guys. They yeah. know water. They know pipes. They know all that stuff. They, they don't know IT. They don't know cyber. And so that's kind of the 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 goal, right, to help, to help them. But they're also facing things like ransomware, things like potential state threats or at least, you know, espionage or perhaps, you know, just kind of laying the ground to see what is there in case something does happen in the future. Ransomware is probably the biggest threat to them right now, as it is for most companies, most businesses. Um, you know, OT is there, but there's a lot of IT as well. And, you know, the kind of so-called convergence of these two where there is some connections where there might sh- where there might uh, shouldn't be is, is a growing concern for sure. And so this is their kind of way to try to at least do something in this area. I think the focus on water is interesting in part because 
the idea in the popular imagination of what a malicious hacker might do, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the nightmare scenario is it's taking down the grid and mm -hmm. it's poisoning the water supply, yeah. I yeah. think, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And when it comes to water utilities, right, potentially, you know, a hacker could get into the system and tinker with the level of lie, as mm -hmm. we were joking, right? Mm -hmm. What's actually, what's happened concretely in terms of, of these types of attacks? Has, has a hacker ever broken into a, a water utility and tinkered with the levels to try to poison a city? Well, maybe. We, we don't right. really know. That's, that's right. kind of the thing. Love that. It, there was this incident in Oldsmar, Florida. Um, I want to say a couple years ago now. I actually don't. It's pandemic time still in my head. I, I don't remember exactly when it happened. But essentially, there was an employee who, this is this is the initial story, who watched the mouse kind of move and saw someone click into the levels of lie and raise it. Uh, I think from like, you know, 10 to 1,000 or something like some some ridiculous number like that. Um, now, even if that didn't happen, nothing would have happened to the water supply. There are safety checks behind all that jazz. However, you know, that was a really big concern. The sheriff's department and the mayor had a press conference uh, the next day after all this happened. You know, I wrote about it. The New York Times wrote about it. It was really, really big news. And it might not have happened, actually. Uh, I, I wrote a story earlier this year where a the... I think it was a city's the city manager basically said the FBI looked into it and they told him they didn't really find anything. It could have been the guy kind of just bumping his elbow, I think, was one of the one of the theories. Um, but, you know, the FBI said, you know, they kind of gave that that very like we, we didn't find anything very specific to this claim. But maybe it was a hacker. Maybe it was an insider threat. We don't really know. There have been some ransomware attacks before in the industry, of course, like this is. It's like an industry like any other. There's been attacks. There's been people trying to do bad things to them. But that was probably the biggest uh, the biggest event to happen in the water sector and also one that helped drive a lot of these calls for regulations. Mm -hmm. It's real like Simpsons vibes to have somebody sitting at a control station and bump a mouse with their elbow and then end up blaming a hacker. Yeah. Right? Screaming like a, dope. Yeah. yeah I can see like an episode of the Simpsons <laughs> of uh, Homer at the control station at the nuclear power station. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> you know, bumping something. Like, no. It's a <laughs> yeah. 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 So the EPA has withdrawn these, mm -hmm. um, these rules now, right? Mm -hmm. Where does that leave us in terms of cybersecurity requirements for the water industry? Where are we at today? Right. So the next kind of move by the administration is is essentially to ask Congress to give them some authorities, right? That's kind of the whole thing. It, EPA says it doesn't have the authorities to do so. Um, and Biden administration is basically going to ask Congress, okay, can you do that? Can you give them to them? Now, the the water the water sector or the trade uh, associations, some of the trade associations have suggested this kind of like dual. Um, we have this EPA as a you know sector risk management agency, kind of like the uh, the electric sector, and then you have um, this kind of trade group slash. Uh, Nonprofit thing. Essentially, with, with the with the electricity sector, you have this uh, organization run by uh, feds and an organization that's kind of like, okay, here's the industry kind of helping along, and that's that's the one that uh, the water sector is trying to push as well as a potential avenue for having some sort of policy and procedures in place to have new rules that you know our industry approved, and also helps you know 
keep things safer. But that's a kind of far cry, in my opinion, at the moment, um, especially as things in Congress are not looking too good. Yeah, this, is, this is a good example of something that's potentially really important, the safety of the U.S. water supply mm-hmm. getting completely neglected yeah. due to the lack of a speaker and partisan gridlock in the Congress. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this type of thing, you know, happens all the time. Anytime something like this is going on, there are policies not being placed and there are, you know, things like this happening. And this 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 might be this might be one of them. Um it's it's unsure, you know, we have an election coming up. Is are we gonna have anyone who wants to add new regulations? Cause that's kind of what this is, right? New regulations and whether or not that is actually politically viable is a good question. Mm. And it was it was this dysfunction in the or the difficulty of passing legislation in Congress that it appears drove the Biden administration towards this creative solution in the first place of relying on sanitary checks so that they just didn't have to deal with. Congress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can just go around it. Right. I mean, there there are definitely like you kind of see something somewhat similar happened with the TSA, uh, the Transportation Security Administration passing their own kind of laws within within their, you know, they, they basically went through um, a, a, a security directive, kind of like an emergency directive in order to pass these pass these that still have to be reenacted every year. And that's mm-hmm. and they're going through the policymaking of, of having new, uh, more permanent regulations right now. But, yeah, a lot of this is just we'll, we'll get what we can right now and then just see if we can kind of keep it up. Um It'll be interesting to see if we can actually see any movement on this, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doubtful personally. All right. Well, thanks for your great reporting on this, Christian, and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Next up on Safe Mode, we've got FBI agent Elliot Peterson, one of the Bureau's lead investigators looking into distributed denial of service attacks. That's up next on Safe Mode. I'm joined today by Elliot Peterson a special agent assigned to the FBI's Anchorage field office and a member of its cyber and counterintelligence squad. A 12-year veteran of the FBI, Peterson has participated in some of the Bureau's most high-profile investigations of botnets and distributed denial-of-service attacks. Elliot Peterson, welcome to SafeMode. Thanks, Elias. Great to have you on the show. So I'm curious if we might start off just with a bit of level setting and perhaps have you describe what, from your view, the contemporary DDoS landscape looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, right now we're seeing three sort of distinct tool sets, which I can describe. And, and that's maybe different than if you'd asked me that question, you know, one to five years ago, I would have said we were dealing with really two distinct tool sets. Um, and so breaking down what those are, we still see the majority of DDoS attacks uh, launched by booter or stressor services. So these are for-profit web-based services that principally are launching reflective amplification attacks that abuse various UDP protocols. And they're really popular because they're easy to use and they can often be really cheap, you know, $30, $50 a month, sometimes less. Um, And so, you know, I would say probably, you know, somewhere between 40 to 60% of DDoS attacks are probably coming directly through those services. The other, uh, the other predominant way we see DDoS attacks launched are via various botnets. Generally, these will be based on Internet of Things devices that have been compromised, but there are also Windows-based DDoS botnets. 
Those are usually capable of launching more powerful attacks, um, but not always, and generally will cost more money, maybe hundreds of dollars a month instead of you know, 10 to 30 to $50 a month. The third type of attacks that we're seeing now are cloud-based attacks that are taking advantage of the large number of open proxy resolvers that are on the internet. So instead of relying on victim devices, like in the case of a botnet, to carry out your attacks and essentially magnify, not, not amplify, but sort of magnify because the number of victims that you have, will, you know, the more victims I have, the larger an attack I can conduct. And I'm not amplifying in the way I would be with the UDP protocols, where maybe it's a very small request gets me a very large response. So I, I don't have that working for me, but because I can hide my attacks behind this layer of open proxies, I can rely on really cheap cloud architecture to sort of be the main driver of the attack. So those are really the three main things we're seeing you know, today in terms of the DDoS landscape. And how has that landscape evolved from your perspective in the last couple of years? Um, you know, I've been working on these cases since probably about 2015. And, you know, we see we see it evolve in response to law enforcement operations done by the FBI and, and a lot of our partners or international partners. We also see it evolve in terms of the technology. Sometimes there might be a vulnerability um, that might be discovered by a criminal group that enables maybe a much larger attack or a much more effective attack. And then we'll see that become quickly adopted by certain groups. And so, you know, in the background, there's a lot of efforts between the government and private sector, um, for example, when there's new techniques to try to maybe tamp them down or try to um, make them a lot less viable. Because once the attacks get to a certain size and, and certain proliferation, it, it really causes a lot of trouble across the Internet for everybody. And we really try to focus to kind of keep things below that level. When I think about DDoS attacks today, they almost feel like a, a bit of a throwback to an earlier time in the internet and, uh, you know, from a, like as a reporter covering these things, you know, a lot of times my, and no offense, you know, my eyes can kind of glaze over a little bit when I, when I start reading about DDoS attacks, how big of a problem is this? I, like, to what extent should we be caring about DDoS attacks in, you know, our year, the year 2023? Great question. And, you know, I always say, People aren't wrong in some in some cases when they when they can look at it a little dismissively, but it's actually a lot more dangerous than most people think. And if I can maybe break that down for a little bit and explain, the majority of the DDoS attacks we track, and and this is based on the fact that you know we'll seize these backends um, in, in a lot of these cases, and we'll we'll end up analyzing all of the attack traffic, and we also have the ability to look at live DDoS attack data because so many DDoS attacks actually spill out publicly on the internet. So we, we can get a really good sense of what's being attacked and when and at what scale. And there's still a lot of DDoS that is, we might say, gaming-centric or competition-centric where you know the, the person launching the attack is on a US residential IP or a European residential IP, and they're attacking a, another person at a residential IP, right? So it's it's some form of kind of competition and, and maybe even nuisance. Now, that's not to say that the ISP isn't bothered. That's not to say that the victim isn't null routed for some period of time. Um, that's not to say we wouldn't see that same individual maybe launch an attack against a school or a hospital, or a lot of other things. But the bulk, the vast majority of the attacks are sort of these, these smaller attacks and they're shorter attacks, you know, a minute, two minutes. They, they have a, a goal in mind and it's generally to sever the internet connection of the person they're attacking. 
Mm. Having said that, DDoS is a lot like a light switch. And it turns out that as the internet gets wider, larger, as sort of our society becomes you know, more interconnected, there can be a lot of competitive advantages for people or economic advantages that they can shut down a competing internet service, a competing website. And so we have seen and tracked groups that do extortion, groups that are really engaged in trying to impact critical infrastructure. And you know, there's this really sort of fine line between sort of what internet costs and how much capacity you can get for a reasonable amount and what it looks like when you're on the other side of a lot of DDoS attacks. And it can cost staggering amounts of money. I mean, we've interviewed companies that have had their operating costs double or triple because of DDoS because they've had to get new peering arrangements and pay for increased bandwidth mm -hmm. to the point that they're worried about, for example, being able to stay in business. Um, there are a, plenty of examples sort of historically of DDoS getting to a certain scale that, you know, the integrity of the internet in certain places has been kind of compromised and you start to think about the spillover effects. So there is a certain scale, a certain size of, of DDoS that causes a problem for everybody. And, and like I said, we devote a lot of time and attention to trying to keep things below that scale. Um, so it doesn't seem to me like a problem that's necessarily going to go away, but you know, we do get, I mean, exactly the question you asked, like, does this matter? And, you know, we usually say, yeah, it matters when it matters. You know, we talk to a lot of companies right. that are sort of losing their minds when their, their business is, you know, being threatened because of a really acute DDoS attack. And sometimes there's no amount of money they can throw at it to, to resolve it. One thing I'm uh, super fascinated by is, is the role of DDoS attacks in inside video gaming communities. I'm wondering if you might elaborate on that a little bit and how how gamers are, are using DDoS attacks against their opponents. Absolutely. So, you know, gaming and, and, and we really try to phrase it as sort of competitive advantage in gaming through DDoS and, and a few other technologies um, sort of rose with, with the prevalence of, of gaming. So imagine, you know, let's go back, you know, five, 10 years ago, I'm playing Halo. I'm in an Xbox Live party. And it's actually possible for me to determine the IP addresses of my opponents. What happened very quickly is people realized that they could win the game if they could kick their opponents offline. And the way they actually realized this often was when they themselves were kicked offline. Like most of the people we've interviewed that were sort of gaming-centric DDoS folks, they were affected by it, didn't see any enforcement, and, and realized that it was only fair if they participated in this landscape. And so you just had this mass adoption of these technologies um, around gaming because it offered such a compelling advantage. You know, and, and it, we would talk to gaming companies and when they would run competitions, everyone would have to have a VPN or, you know, they would have to, even within the gaming companies themselves, sort of make allowance for the prevalence of DDoS. Now, What's gotten better over time is, you know, a lot of the gaming companies have tried to um, not allow players to see other players' IPs, for example. You know, that went a long way towards sort of minimizing this. But, you know, for a few years, I mean, back in when I started this in 2015, I mean, the majority of the attacks we were seeing day to day were sort of gaming attacks. Where it sort of shifted and persisted is you'll see um, a lot of attacks against servers, against specific game modes, against ports that are hosting. You know, it's just... It, it does seem like at least the Xbox, PlayStation network, you know, those sort of attacks against players, that seems to have been contained through engineering changes. But, 
you know, we still see a lot of it targeting Minecraft servers and Roblox and all sorts of things like that. So who are the, the contemporary DDoS operators today? You know, talking about it as a video game phenomenon makes me think that it's a lot of children who are participating in the DDoS economy. Is that true? So it trends younger than other crime types. Um, you know, children, if, if you mean under 18, we'll see that. Yeah, but I would, I would generally say that we see a lot of these services where the customers and the operators are in North America or Western Europe. You know, they're sort of gaming adjacent. And, you know, I think that probably 80% would fall in an age band of sort of 17 to 25. You know, somewhere in there is, is when we sort of tend to observe this. Now, the majority of the people that we're interacting with are over 18. That are running these services that are profitable, that are running sort of top services. They're generally um, over 18, over 22. You know, they're, they're getting a little bit older um, by the time that we're usually interacting with them. How lucrative is it to, to run one of these DDoS services? Well, I would argue it's not worth risking a felony or an arrest for. Um, <laughs> You know, but it, what's really hard, and this is sort of a, this is not just unique to DDoS, right? If you look at sort of cybercrime problems is that if you're a younger person, you're sort of not done with college and, you know, it doesn't take a lot of money for it to be enticing. So, you know, generally right. speaking, we don't think there's a lot of people that are getting rich in this space, but that doesn't mean that there's not an economic driver or motivator um, but again, you know, as we sort of arrest and interact with these people, I, I've never had one that has said anything like it's worth it. They all say, I wish I'd never done this. Yeah, but it, it doesn't it doesn't take a lot of money, I think, for a 22 year old to to make the conclusion that, you know, if I can make a little quick cash on the side while, you know, spending a lot of time online gaming by, you know, DDoSing some opponents, that's the threshold is very low. It is very low, and that is um, a reason that you know you see sort of mass adoption of certain crime types. Absolutely. Yeah. Who like, who is attacking who in 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 this space? Is this you know when we think about cybercrime in the U.S. or in kind of media conversations around cybercrime, you know, it's very focused on Eastern Europe, uh, criminal gangs in post-Soviet states. What about the DDoS phenomenon? Is that something that has that same type of, of geographic scope or is it? Yeah, great question. It does. And what's really fun about it is because, as I mentioned, you can measure it, you can observe it, you can track it in real time. Um, and because we end up getting access to a lot of the backend data sets where we can see the customers that launch these attacks, you know, you can infer a lot of things. And one of the really interesting observations is the majority of our attackers are launching attacks against their own country or targets in their own country, right? So most of the people, you know, if you're in China, you're often launching attacks against China, America, Russia, et cetera. And there are some exceptions to that. And when you move over to maybe the botnet side of things, I think that it's not quite as clear. Um, but you can also find cases where that's abundantly not true. You know, you might have an actor that's really focused on a specific region or really focused on a specific type of service. And you know, for example, cryptocurrency websites are very common targets. Gambling, very common targets. We've already talked about gaming, but there are certain industries that can be sort of overrepresented in terms of DDoS attack victims. Wondering if you could talk us through you know, your process for investigating a DDoS attack. How are you, or a DDoS operator for that matter, you know, how are you choosing your targets and what does evidence collection look like when you're doing an investigation like that? Sure. So, you know, 
sticking strictly to kind of what we would have talked about, for example, Black Hat, where we walk through some of the evidence that we brought into the trial because we had a trial against one of these operators recently. You know, we really try to start from a standpoint of taking a look across the entire DDoS industry and starting to look at which are the top services. And that could mean based on daily attacks, how long they've been around, how much money we think they're making. But we try to get a handle on what are the top services. And then, you know, we start to try to ask questions about what infrastructure they're using, how they're signing up for that infrastructure. And we continue to ask, uh, refine those questions essentially until we're really looking at, for example, the email accounts they're using, determining you know where we think these people are located. And so the, the sort of front half of our investigation is generally figuring out who's running it and where are they at. And then the next question we ask um, is, we'll go to a judge and we'll ask, you know, can we get permission to go and search this person? Can we go look, you know, let's say at their house and their computer and look for evidence of this? And that's usually the first time we're actually meeting and interacting with this person. So in the context of those searches, we'll then interview them and we'll talk about the service. And then generally we take all that information back and we'll brief, you know, our headquarters and our prosecutor and, and start to, you know, they'll start to be thinking about the prosecutors, especially like, okay, well, what does a charging decision look like? You know, what are we moving forward? And we'll often, you know, aggregate sort of several targets into kind of a takedown along with a lot of additional actions. So, you know, at the same time we've been doing this investigation, we've also been researching a whole lot of services maybe that we're not necessarily going to arrest the operators at this time, but we really would like to kind of suspend the service and, and stop the harm, for example, that they're causing. So a lot of the work we've done the last you know few years has been to try to figure out the way to do those things with the most impact. How hard is it to identify the operators behind these networks? You know, it really depends. You know, every operator, because they're all sort of running their own independent operations, they might have different levels of, you know, the common term would be OPSEC. They might be using different email providers. Um, so, you know, I would say that there's not a single standard. You know, on, on the one side, you know, some people um, are a lot easier. Maybe it takes us a lot less steps to figure out who they are. And with some people, it can be a lot more challenging. When it comes to cyber investigations, and especially those that are focused on kind of foreign actors, you know, Russian state-backed hackers, Chinese state-backed hackers, it's pretty rare to, to get somebody in cuffs. And a lot of these indictments are, are more about naming and shaming folks than anything else. I'm wondering, what's your success rate on, on getting folks in, in cuffs? So it's going to depend on the crime type. That's a really great question. So, you know, the cases I've worked that might be more traditional, um, let's say Windows botnets that are uh, maybe financial fraud trojans that are run by Eastern European individuals, um, that's a lot more challenging process. It can take more time. And, you know, we've had um, some cases where we haven't, you know, ultimately been able to affect arrests of people. We've had others where because we've partnered with other FBI agencies or other international groups, you've had a lot of luck. So, you know, we worked mm -hmm. with FBI's New Haven on the Kilios investigation and were able to arrest Peter Levishov while he was on vacation in Spain. And that was, um, you know, really kind of eye opening for us to sort of see the degree to which, you know, in retrospect, of course, but when you arrest the main administrator for a botnet, that tends to mean you're likely to have the botnet stop functioning. Whereas if you don't arrest that main individual, right, there can be this question of, do they come back? You know, can you sufficiently deter them? So in the booter space and in, in, in a lot of the DDoS space where we've sort of had this trend toward North American and Western European actors, we've had a lot of success identifying and arresting people.
And once you carry out arrests or, or do takedowns, you know, to what to what extent are some of these networks or some of this infrastructure kind of spooling back up and kind of being resuscitated in a new form? Right. So, you know, that's the real question. And what we've been trying to do in the booter and stressor space is take a step back from maybe the more traditional mentality of we're investigating specific services, right? Because the front half of my career, I would be investigating specific services. You know, if it was Game Over, if it was Kelios, um, everything I was doing was was looking at that. With the booter and stressor, we had increased our scale. We were trying to maybe impact five or 10 at a time. And we've realized that what happens then is we're essentially now investigating the entire crime type. And we're learning things that are fun and, and not fun. Because as I mentioned, you know, the we can see the data. We can actually see and track and study our impact with this crime type because so much of it spills out publicly. So we know how we're doing and how they react. And so here's an interesting observation. In some ways, maybe the more successful we are at impacting high profile services, the more of a vacuum we create where there might be more money for somebody else to step in. Does that kind of make sense? Like if I take out maybe the top X percent mm -hmm. of the players, then potentially I've created this opportunity for somebody else who wants to come in to see, see more profits because we've removed those top services. Mm -hmm. Now, having said all that, yeah. we're trying to learn to account for that. So we're working to sort of develop strategies that try to sort of maybe time our actions in such a way that we're kind of reducing that by increasing the sense of sort of risk among the people that might step back into that void. I mean, we're hearing FBI and Justice Department officials, you know, talk a lot more about like crime interdiction for young people now, especially with, you know, in the aftermath of these um, attacks on the Vegas casinos by this group known as the Calm, which is supposedly a group scattered of, spider you know, right, online. Right. Scattered Spider, um, a complicated unk dash some set of digits. Um, <laughs> regardless, you know, there's an effort now uh, to, to talk a bit more about crime interdiction and, and to try to talk about, you know, preventing young people from falling into this activity in the first place. Do you have any thoughts on, on, on how to do that, how to prevent like kids from getting involved or young people, you know, from getting involved in, in this type of activity in the first place from, you know, your years investigating this type of work? Yeah, so I would say maybe very finely addressing this, maybe based solely on my own experience, right, because I don't speak at all for any sort of bigger policy metrics. There are crime types, um, cybercrime types that are tend to be overrepresentative in terms of the younger people, right? So um, sim swapping, the activity the comms engaged in, DDoS as well, you know, those actors trend younger. As we sort of interact and interview with these guys, you know, it does, you know, they all tell us they were about to quit. I mean, that's like a pretty normal thing we hear. It's like, oh, if you had just told me, we would have walked away. And that's something, you know, like we're going to try to test out, I think, in some of the future iterations of, um, at least like with this DDoS space, like we're going to try and see to what degree sort of having those conversations um, works. You know, we have a lot of international partners that are devoting a lot of resources to trying to have those deterrence conversations. Within my personal interactions where, you know, the people that I'm dealing with are sort of after 18, there's sort of this other kind of question and piece of this too. Like we still have the same concerns, like 
we don't want to be arresting and rearresting people for cyber crimes. We've been trying to find ways to, you know, through the auspices of cooperation or sort of mentoring, like how can we ensure that these people we're interacting with and charging with these felonies, like, you know, don't return to sort of the cybercrime lifestyle. And that's really challenging. And I think that's something that a lot of people are spending a, time, a lot of time and effort thinking about. Well, thanks, Elliot. We'll leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Elias. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.